Well, one of the best experiences I had in recent days uh, was doing some indoor skydiving at a place called iFly. Uh, if you live up towards Chermside or you know up there, it's connected to their shopping centre. Uh, it's a really wild experience where you step into this Perspex tunnel, uh, it's a wind tunnel, and during that time you can lean forward and experience this kind of sense of weightlessness as if you were skydiving. Uh, you lean out into this slipstream of air and you start to hover five or so feet above the ground. Uh, that's if you're good at it. If you're not very good, you tend to kind of wobble all over the place. Now, at one point in this tunnel experience, uh, the coach, they kind of leant on the ground and grabbed me by the arms and legs and then jumped and threw me way up in the air, uh, all the way to the top of the tunnel, which was probably about four or five stories. Uh, it was pretty wild, pretty scary at points. But it also meant at the top of the tunnel that I came rapidly falling back to earth, only to narrowly miss about four or five inches above the ground, Mission Impossible style, kind of hitting it. Uh, it was terrifying. Uh, it was all planned. I saw them do this with a few other people. They're pretty amazing at it. Uh, it was exciting, but I think the best way that I could describe this experience is freeing. It was very, very freeing being in the tunnel. But then I thought to myself, what would absolute freedom feel like? What, what would it look like to really be free? And I thought, to some degree, well, it had to involve skydiving. Uh, while skydiving, though, it ranks up there as the, the peak of freedom, uh, nothing but the air all around you. You can kind of see the horizon. The, the ground doesn't really feel like it's moving towards you. You just kind of feel just like you can float around. The problem with this is that there's that annoying, bulky parachute that you're carrying on your back. It's not really freedom while that thing is strapped to you. Not to mention the spare parachute as well and the rest of the equipment that's on you. And then there's the problem of all those awkward straps that keep it all attached to you. They're right up in places. And, and when you think about it, you're just not really free at all. So I thought, wouldn't it be better if we just ditched the parachute altogether? You know, then, then you would be truly free in that experience. And yet I think you all know when you think about this, it's a really silly idea because we all know how that would end. Uh, we all know that if you jump from 40,000 feet without a parachute, you ain't going to jump no more. And yet here in chapter 10 of Corinthians, it seems that the Corinthians, they have their freedom in Christ, but they're almost wanting to ditch the parachute as well because they thought they had absolute freedom in Christ. At least some of them did. Uh, their mantra, which you see in verse 23, is, I have the right to do anything. Don't tell me I'm not allowed to jump from 40,000 feet without a parachute. How dare you tell me that? You can't tell me what to do. And so Paul, well, he needs to remind them, yes, they've been spiritually freed in Christ. But this doesn't give them a license to do absolutely anything. Right, their freedom, for example, doesn't all of a sudden give them a license to sin. And yet by the time we get to chapter 10, this is what it looks like they're arguing, what it looks like they're doing. They're using their freedom in some sense to openly and brazenly sin. I have the right to do anything, you say. Really? But not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Okay, but... Not everything's constructive. Now, when they say this, uh, in case you're wondering what they probably had in mind with this mantra, we already caught some glimpse of this back in chapter 6. 
as Paul writes back there in a bit of a deja vu moment, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. However, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. This uh, quote, I have the right to do anything, it seems to be, at least in chapter 6 here, in relation to sexual immorality back in chapter 6. And Paul raises uh, this mantra once again here in chapter 10 as he warns them not to use their freedom to indulge in all kinds of other sins, which we'll look at shortly. Now, if we come back to chapter 10, the, the essence of the chapter is this. Be careful that you don't abuse your freedom. Be careful that your freedom doesn't lead you into sin. And this is where Paul, he takes aim at the Israelites back in Moses' day. That's the first half of the chapter that we didn't have read for us. And he gives the Corinthians a bit of a history lesson. So I've popped it up on the screen here. Starting at verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Uh, to best understand what Paul's getting at here, you have to have some understanding of Israel's exodus from Egypt uh, and their time immediately after that in the wilderness. Uh, you can find a lot of this uh, in the first couple of books of your Bible right at the beginning, if you look at Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and so on. But in a nutshell, Paul, he wants to highlight certain connections between this Israel wandering and the Corinthians themselves and, dare I say, even us here today. So, for example, uh, he says that the Israelites had symbolically been baptized, right? They walked through the parted Red Sea. If you remember, there was a big wall of water on the left and a big wall of water on the right, and they walked through on dry ground, effectively walking through death and coming out alive at the other end. He also says that they'd eaten and drunk the signs of their salvation. So at the other end, after God had already saved them, God provided bread from heaven. It's pretty amazing. And even water in the middle of a desert, water from a rock, And he did this more than once. In other words, they were enjoying all of these symbols of their salvation on their way to the promised land. In fact, it kind of blows my brain a little bit here as Paul hints that they were in fellowship with Christ even ahead of time, before Jesus had even come. He says they all ate and drank the same spiritual food. Uh, Sorry, they all uh, ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. It's a bit of a strange one. Uh, Now, don't tie yourselves in knots trying to figure out all the ins and outs of how this works and how the rock could possibly be some kind of pre-Jesus-Jesus thing, because I, I think what Paul's essentially getting at here is that Christ is the source of life for the Corinthians as he was also the source of life for those wandering in Israel, in the wilderness. It's pretty amazing stuff. And yet, after he says all of these things, they've partaken in all of these things that signify their salvation, this is where the narrative comes to a grinding halt. 
Yes, they've been baptized, they're eating, they're drinking. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of that generation and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This is one of those, everything's going swimmingly and then you get that vinyl scratch moment, you know, where (gasps) someone drops a glass kind of thing, the music stops, the people stand there staring. Because despite participating in all the signs of their salvation, their bones fell and remained in the dust. They participated in all the outward signs of being saved. They shared fellowship. They drank the Lord's spiritual drink and bread, kind of a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper is what Paul's hinting at here. Uh, They were even kind of symbolically baptized into freedom. Yet despite these external things, what was going on inside What was going on in their hearts spoke another story because they continued to act in rebellion towards the very one who saved them. Now, what did they do exactly? What sins did the wilderness generation commit? Uh, Well, Paul gives us a few examples in the next few verses. So starting at verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters. There's the first one. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, this is possibly the golden calf, if you remember that. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. It's pretty hard stuff. Paul continues, he says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, if you've been a Christian for any period of time or you've been coming to this church for any period of time, you'd know that this is really scary stuff. I mean, what, what is Paul getting at here? Is he saying that, that you can lose your salvation? And, and what's the link he's drawing between the Israelites in the wilderness and the believers at Corinth that we need to take home here today? Well, I think it's simply this. Just as the Israelites didn't make it into the promised land but died on the way, despite feeding on the bread and drinking on the water and being baptised, The Corinthians and all of us here today also need to be careful that we don't make the mistake of thinking that our freedom being saved in Christ, that our baptism, that the Lord's Supper and and partaking in all of these things will in any way help you if you decide to plunge yourself headlong into sin. Now this might make you feel very uncomfortable Uh, Most people don't like coming face-to-face with their sin. Uh, In fact, most people don't like coming face-to-face more than that with what happens, the spiritual dangers that that kind of come along with the sin. And so people kind of find all sorts of ways to call something that's sin not sin. Like one solution, for example, that many churches even today do to cope with something like this is they reject the truth. They reject the teaching of the Bible. And and some will say, well, the teaching of the Scriptures, is it's it's outdated now. Culture's moved on. We've we've changed, and we need to move with the times too. So something that that is a sin in the Bible, well, we're going to consider it no longer a sin, and we're going to teach that. But by doing that, they miss Paul's entire argument here in 1 Corinthians 10. 
You see, the reason he brings up this wilderness generation is to show them that God's moral character never changes. It was the same a thousand years ago, it's the same in the Corinthians' time, and it's the same today. And so if people and churches continue down this path of calling evil good uh, and good evil, calling something that's sin not sin, well, we're all effectively playing Russian roulette with people's eternity. As people like the Israelites in the wilderness, they might think they're standing firm, as Paul says, but are in fact moments from falling. To put all this uh, as simply as possible, in a nutshell, you can't serve God and at the same time be comfortable and complacent with sin, ever. Now, to be clear, this is really important, so if you tune out, listen up here, Paul is not saying that if you struggle with the same sin over and over again that you're not a Christian. Okay, he's not saying that. In fact, he's far from that. If you struggle with sin, and even if you struggle with the same sin and you feel frustration over it, never having conquered it for some reason, it's often a sign that the Spirit is indeed at work within you. But there's a fundamental difference between struggling with sin, right, disliking the taste of sin, like those aniseed lollies that you have, being never comfortable with sin in your life. There's a difference between that and rewriting God's law to convince yourself that something that is a sin is no longer a sin. If you sit in the first category, if you're struggling with uh, temptation to sin, for example, uh, and the weight seems too much sometimes, uh, well, the next few verses, uh, these are ones to take heart because they're extremely comforting. As Paul writes in verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And look, God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are being tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You see, Paul's saying that temptation, it is simply part of the human experience. Uh, Since the fall, uh, as a fallen people ourselves, we all experience temptation in various ways. Uh, We're constantly prone to compromising our faith. Uh, We're constantly prone to to sin uh, in front of God, in front of one another, to even lie to our own hearts from the cradle all the way to the grave. But there's another universal truth, if if we're worried about this, that we need to cling to, and that is God is faithful. He is a good God, and he will always provide a way out of temptation. Right? He's not a God who, who locks you in a room with no exits and says, good luck, buddy. No, he's a God who is faithful and will always provide a way out. The question is, will you take this? Uh, Potiphar's wife from Genesis 39, this is one of my favourite examples of literally fleeing temptation. Uh, if you don't know the story, on multiple occasions, uh, the wife of Potiphar, she, she begs Joseph uh, to lie with her, to, to sleep with her. And she's so blinded by lust that day after day she heckles him and ramps up her efforts until one evening she can take it no longer. She grabs Joseph by his coat and yells, come to bed with me. Genesis 39, 11, if you want to check it out. Now, Joseph's response to this insane kind of 
straightforward act here by Potiphar's wife, his response to temptation is amazing because he slips out of his coat, which she had him pinned by, and literally runs away. God will always provide a way out. The question is, are you willing and game enough to take it? Now, why does all of this matter? Well, because in the next verse, in verse 14, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now, this is a beautiful part of the letter because this is quite a serious chapter, if you haven't already noticed. But right in the middle of this very serious uh, section, Paul calls the Corinthians his dear friends. Uh, He has a lot of love for these churches, even the ones that are struggling. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. They're to flee. Uh, They're to run away. Uh, In fact, the the modern English word for fugitive uh, is built off this word here. Right, we need to be essentially on the run, kind of like a fugitive, like Joseph was from Potiphar's wife. We need to be on the run from life-threatening danger that sin presents. And in the case of the Corinthians, it probably included fleeing from these pagan temples. Because if they join in the festivities going on inside, Paul says they could be participating in demonic activity. Um, Verse 19, Paul says, The sacrifices of pagans in these temples are offered to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be uh, participants with demons. There's another thing we don't talk about every day at church. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, if you've known uh, going through Corinthians 8 and 9 as well, uh, you might be thinking at this point, I thought the meat was just meat, Right? I thought it was all hunky-dory. You know, eat what you want. The earth is the Lord and everything's in it. So what's the deal here? Has Paul just changed his mind? Has he flip-flopped about? What's he doing here that he's saying was kind of allowable two chapters earlier? Well, the answer, if we look down at verses 25 to 26, is is not that he's changed his mind. Uh, He still maintains that the meat is just meat. In verse 25, it says, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord and everything in it. And if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So, yeah, he's saying, by all means, eat the meat. But then again, what's, what's he doing? Are you meant to? Are you not? What's the deal with demons? What constitutes participating with them? Well, I think the simplest way to understand this is to consider the difference between the physical meat itself and the pagan rituals associated with it. So on the one hand, for example, the meat, it will always remain just that, even if it's sacrificed to an idol. Uh, Dare I say, I think Paul's even hinting here, even if the meat's offered to demons, it's actually still good to eat because it's physically just meat. But the difference here in chapter 10 is that you never, ever, ever want to actively participate in demonic activity or in something that is blatantly sinful, which means fleeing idolatry. Now, this fleeing idolatry, it's, it's probably code for don't go into the temples themselves. All right? The meat out the front of the temples that's been sacrificed to gods, it's fine to, to purchase, don't ask any questions and just eat it. But don't go into the temples themselves and eat within their walls. 
Again, eating meat, it's fine. Uh, Paul goes so far as to say that don't even ask questions about where the meat came from. Uh, even when you're at the, the table with an unbeliever, right, who probably had this meat sacrificed to another god. But don't ever find yourself joining in the ritual because you might find yourself actually participating at the altar, in the words of verse 18. In a nutshell, joining on the worship of other gods is not a Christian grey area. This isn't a matter of conscience. Because God has given his explicit command to worship no other gods but him. So, by all means, eat the meat. But if in any way you find yourself participating in the acts of worship, then it's time to flee. Now, the problem with the Corinthians is that perhaps they were hardening their consciences quite firmly on this one when it came to sin. They may no longer have thought this was an issue to, to participate in, in kind of this idol worship explicitly. They may no longer have felt the sting or the struggle of obeying the commands to keep God as God. And the warning here is to be careful that we don't actually jump out of the plane without the parachute on. Now, Paul's conclusion at the end of this chapter, it does bring a a lighter, a more optimistic note. Uh, He finishes by saying this. He says, whatever you eat uh, or drink and whatever you do, we'll do this for the glory of God and don't cause anyone to stumble. This is basically the the, the summary statement of chapters 8 to 10, which we've covered over the last few weeks. And really, this is more or less his version of love God and love your neighbour. At the end of the day, these are the things we have to have in mind when we consider what we are doing as Christians. But I think in light of the weight of this chapter, I want to finish by reminding of Paul's words in verse 13. I want to remind you that God is faithful. And we know he's faithful because when we were stuck in our sin, when we failed to give glory to God, well, God took it upon himself to take that failure and place it onto Jesus, and take Jesus' righteousness and place that on to us. So if you're sitting here this evening, if you have ever felt like you're stuck in sin, maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, and you suddenly realise that, that you've actually been calling something that's a sin not a sin and justifying it in your life, well, now is the time to repent. If you've hardened your hearts and you're now worried that you might be setting yourself up for a jump out of the plane without a parachute, if you're worried that you've taken your freedom too far, worried that you've called something good that God has called sin, then now, this evening, is the time to set things straight. Now is the time to repent. If you're sitting here this evening, if you've been listening along and you feel this is you, Uh, What I'm going to do, I don't normally do this, in fact, I think this is the first time I've done it here, uh, is pray a prayer. Uh, This isn't for everyone, but this is, if you know that you've realised, if you realise you've been keeping God at arm's length, if you think you've been faking it to make it up until now, you know, doing all the right things, saying all the right words, maybe even taking the Lord's Supper and having been baptised and so on. But if you suddenly realise that you haven't really been living a life consistent with living for Jesus, then I'm going to pray a prayer that you can silently join in 
uh, to ask God for forgiveness and a changed heart. I'm going to do that one now. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. Like the Israelites in the wilderness and the Corinthians, I am guilty of hardening my heart and rebelling against you and ignoring you. I'm sorry and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so that I might be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me. Please change me so that I may live with Jesus as my King. Amen.